0: I think back to growing up in Indiana with that local newspaper and that small town story, even if it seems insignificant, makes a big difference to people. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of those stories that exist in our community. And each one that we miss is a missed chance to, to tell that person's story.
1: Indiana, Chicago, LA, Jerry Springer, Fox Sports 1, Assyrian Journal, and so much more on this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Hi friends, it's Steve and we are on episode 103 where you'll be introduced to Joe Snell, the creator of the Assyrian Journal and Assyrian Stories and the Middle East Minute. I have a huge smile on my face as I prepare to share this episode with you because Joe is an example of an Assyrian who didn't grow up around a bunch of other Assyrians and yet he finds strength and excitement in serving within our community he brings a fresh critical and personal perspective and as you are talking to Joe you sense right away he could be doing any number of things with his life he's super talented and yet he's also super focused Joe's got anchors in his life that keep him grounded and steadily moving forward. And rather than telling you about Joe, I'm going to let you hear for yourselves. But first, do you know someone who should be on the Assyrian podcast? We'd love to get them on the show. Please fill out our form on our website, www.assyrianpodcast.com. And while you're at it, show us some love by rating and reviewing the podcast and showing your friends. How many of you know people? Who would be blessed to hear some of our 103 episodes. Smash that subscribe button and share the Assyrian podcast with your friends. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, here is Joe Snell. So what I'm eager to do during our time is open up and start the conversation around what makes Joe Snell, Joe Snell. And that begins in Indiana. So take us back to your upbringing.
0: So I was born in Indiana and I moved around a little bit growing up, uh, but for the most part I was raised in Northeast Indiana in a more rural area. I. Did well in school, but I spent most of my time doing entrepreneurial type things. So I organized a Tour de Carroll race, which was a three-day stage race modeled after the Tour de France. And I was also an editor of the school paper. Uh, after I graduated, I—I oh, I should talk about my parents too, shouldn't I?
1: Well, I kind of want to know how you ended up in Indiana in the first place. I know there's some Assyrians in Indiana, but. I don't know how they got there.
0: So my mom is Syrian and my dad is from Detroit. His background is mostly German and parts Irish English. And he worked as an engineer. So we moved around a lot because of his job growing up. Yeah. In Northeast Indiana where I grew up, it was our family and one other Syrian family. We had most of my mom's family in Chicago and we would travel to Chicago pretty often to spend time with the family there. My aunt is a a strong activist in the community and a strong member in the Assyrian Aid Society. And my uncle is also a big part of the Aseran Athletic Club and is part of the Asher's Drama Club, which you guys spoke with a bit ago. But uh, outside of that, I, I'm going to be honest, Steve, I shied away from the community a lot growing up. I didn't speak the language and I concentrated more on trying to fit into my community in rural Indiana.
1: So tell us, what was it that caused you to not connect as much? Was it simply because there wasn't Assyrians around you, or was it something more? It
0: was a few things. It was mostly not having Assyrians around me, immediately in front of me in my community. And I felt a big disconnect from the community. I felt like, "Ah, what's the best? But I, I guess I just didn't feel like a part of the community growing up. Yeah. Because most of the Assyrians I knew when I went to weddings and New Year's parties, a lot of their friends were other Assyrians and they were like heavily involved in a lot of events and parties. And I didn't have that kind of exposure um, from where I grew up. So it, it felt like a big disconnect. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was very much part of the community.
1: Yeah. So though your mom is this strong Assyrian woman, you still... Just by virtue of growing up in Indiana, felt like when you met other Assyrians, you were like,
0: ah, eh, yeah,
1: I don't, I don't necessarily connect as much with them.
0: Yeah, it wasn't until much later in life, which I'm sure we'll touch on, that I realized just how much of a shared
1: experience, a shared Assyrian experience, there is. I can relate to you. I never felt connected very much growing up. You know, even though. Uh, I had a lot of Assyrians around me. I still never felt, and still to this day often, don't feel like I fit in very well. So why in high school did you do the journalism? I
0: realized, fortunately, I realized at a young age the power of journalism or the, uh, the ability of journalism to make a significant impact on somebody's life. Uh, I'll give you an example. So there was a local newspaper in our town called the Northwest News. It was run by one guy and he wrote all the stories and published it and put it out every week. And that newspaper was a big deal for our community. So if, especially if you were in middle school and high school, if you participated in any kind of athletic teams or uh, any kind of uh, like arts and things like that, uh, and there was a write up about you or there was your picture in the paper, uh, you would, uh, you'd fight to check the paper every week. And when you saw your picture, it made a big deal for you and your friends. And a lot of times those newspaper clippings would be cut out and hung on your fridge for weeks. And my mom still has a lot of those clippings in uh, storage. So I, I was fortunate to realize that even a small paper or even a small article in a weekly rule newspaper, uh, about just an athletic event or something. Uh, it made a big difference in my life. It made me feel real special. It uh, it instilled in me, and I think I think about that today, that even one article make it can make a, a real big difference in somebody's life.
1: What sports did you play that got you in the paper, or what was it that got you in the paper? <laughs> it was mostly
0: uh, it was cross-country track and, uh, and basketball. Very cool. Very yeah. cool.
1: So, so there was sort of a very unique small-town context that... For you, this medium of articles and written word and newspaper, even in high school, you were kind of keenly aware that this is a tool. This is power. This is sharing with the world.
0: Yeah, that's right. It was less journalism. I never thought that I would be a writer or reporter. It was more the storytelling aspect of it, if that makes sense.
1: I know that it wasn't necessarily being a reporter because... You went to Chicago and started studying filmmaking. And like what, what would you say your true first love was? If it wasn't journalism, what was it? It was storytelling, 100 percent It
0: was and it still is. So after I graduated high school, I studied it was filmmaking and animation in Chicago. And then at the time I interned at the Jerry Springer and Steve Wilco shows. And I did that for about a year and a half and I I was serious uh, with myself, and I said, if I'm going to take this to the next level, and if I want to be a a big-time executive in the industry, then I need to go to Hollywood, where it's at. So I transferred to USC. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I love it, dude. You can tell your story, and I love it, but I've got to interrupt you because Jerry Springer and the Steve Wilco Show, what the heck happened, man? Thank you. Welcome to the show. My guests today say they might be headed back to lockup if they don't get their love lives resolved. Please meet John. It's the season premiere of the Jerry Springer Show. He told me that my brother was sleeping with my lady. I was sleeping with the while he is was in prison. It's an all-out war in the family when both brothers want to marry her. More than you get in prison, I'll tell you that. It's a tooth-slipping, pole-climbing, flower-beating good time. I'm a very angry person. I had noticed. The 19th season of The Jerry Springer Show begins right now.
0: Uh, so I I got placed there um, as an internship. Uh, actually, I found it online. I took it, and that was a, an amazing experience to see at least. So I'll give you some ideas of what my work was like. We had to scour MySpace at the time and uh, a Craigslist for stories on some of the more interesting pages of those sites. And we'd find these stories and we'd reach out to some of these people and say, Hey, I'm a producer. I'm working with a producer on the Jerry Springer show, and we will fly you and your family out to Chicago for a weekend and wine and dine you uh, if you come on the show and tell your story. And uh, a lot of the people bit, Uh, so we got the stories, they would fly in and then it would be my job to, I have to like find in some of these stories, like working with producers to find the story. uh, Part of my job was they'd fly in and then I would take these families around downtown and kind of loosen them up because the next day, usually they'd have to go on air. So one example is (laughs) a family flew in and there was this woman who was married to a man, and she was sleeping with the man's father. And I was just having—I uh, can't remember where we went. It was the Big McDonald's in downtown. So it was just having like a a lunch with this whole family, <laughs> and like I knew the story, and I'm sure a few people at that table knew the story. But uh, tomorrow morning it would, or tomorrow afternoon it would come out on air, like what was really going down. So that was interesting. The biggest thing that people didn't realize is. Most of these stories were uh, most of these stories were real. Uh, so yeah. a lot of people ask me if they're fake.
1: I thought it was all fake.
0: Yeah, most of it was real. Some of the the staging was fake. So what would happen in one episode? A son was coming out to his pastor father as being gay, and he was going to introduce him to his boyfriend. And wow. the springer show really it pumps it up. So it dressed this priest up in priest robes, like this guy's got to know that something's going on, and the last second the boyfriend chickens out so producers are scrambling like we need to find somebody to fill in to be this guy's boyfriend and they ask me they ask some of the other guys in the <laughs> office like, I don't I don't want to have that on my, my record so I um, reach out to uh, a few of my friends and some other people did we found somebody to, to play, his, uh, play his boyfriend but yeah the story's real sometimes you'd have to like uh,
1: I think it's important to say For all Assyrians all over the world who ever watched any episode of Jerry Springer, that in the background somewhere there was this Assyrian dude who's like (laughs) whining and dining people, finding stories on MySpace and taking them to McDonald's. Joe, that is amazing, bro. Like, it was man.
0: McDonald's. It was like a lot of other places, like Hard Rock Cafe. It was honestly, we asked them where you want to go, and like we would just go. And then a lot of times we'd go on the boat tour in Chicago and things like that. But finding the stories was great. And then show day was another thing. Show day, you need to get the people amped up. So moments before I go on air, producers would get in these people's faces and like scream like different things and just get them riled up, you know. Yeah. So when they go on air, it was uh, different. And a lot of times I was sitting in the, the back room as people stormed in the back. I wonder, I've always wondered if I was ever caught on that shot of the camera that
1: follows these people back. Oh, uh, we should go find some clips, dude. We, we got to go find back. Clips. I do want to go back and say, you know, you studied filmmaking in Chicago. Like, tell us. What are the classes you take what did you learn well i actually
0: started with um it was animation and digital filmmaking so my animation classes were a lot of life drawing classes so i i was drilled in, in drawing classes so it was every day there'd be live uh like nude models that would come into class and we would have to use different mediums to try to paint them or it was like a charcoal day or or colored pencils or, or markers and it's quick sketches or, or more long drawings and object drawings and things like that so we did some of that and then Eventually our classes um, transitioned into uh, like 3D modeling classes. We used 3D Max at the time and I used Maya at home and um, started an animation club at school. Uh, So it was me and uh, four other friends and we would write stories and uh, just create little animations for them just a few minutes long. And that that was great practice. And then with the filmmaking side, so after some of those um, some of those uh, like animation classes with the filmmaking classes, it was the same kind of thing. It was working with buddies on writing scripts and pitching them. And there were a lot of theory-based classes that taught me a lot about how to view life, if that makes sense. Yeah. And a lot of those Ooh. animation classes taught me a lot about how to view life. So, for example, one of the lessons I learned in my drawing classes was a good way to look at a like an object or scene is to break it up into boxes so you don't look at the object but you look at it in terms of each uh, like grid so like top left object what do you see well i see a little bit of a line here a little bit of shading here so that takes you out of putting a uh, conception of like what does this ball look like in your head you break it down into little elements and that was a very fundamental lesson to transition into filmmaking.
1: So it sounds like the animation and the digital film uh, classes were giving you some basic building blocks for understanding story and how to retell stories. That's right yeah
0: and one of the biggest lessons if you don't mind me saying is uh, I took a film theory class and the lesson of the class that that day was there's no scene that's ever going to be truly objective. So even if you put a video camera in a room and you film that room for 24 hours, that video camera still has a frame to it. So there's a story going on outside of that frame. So when you apply that mindset to life and you apply it especially to reporting, there's no true objective story. There's always a story outside the story, something outside the frame that you're not, you're not catching. So...
1: And, yeah. and that's what I love about your work, Joe. I don't know how to put it into words, but when I read your articles and I just think of the work that you've been a part of, is that you don't give a surface level. You do have a way of pinpointing the heart of a matter or the nuance of a story. Now I'm understanding that when Joe goes to report, Joe's not just like, here's what happened, everyone. Joe is thinking deeply about life. Would you say that's accurate?
0: Ooh, that's a deep question, Steve. Thank you for saying that, by the way. I don't know if I'm a very deep thinker, but I, I like to think that uh, I try to think about what's outside of the frame that, that the story's missing. I talk about this a lot, and I think I'll probably mention it later. But most things, most media especially, exists within a window. So a lot of reporters and, and people see certain issues through a window, but that's only one view of an image. So with the Assyrian Journal, I'm trying to open up a new window to these places so you see a new perspective.
1: Wonderful. So we're going to get into the Assyrian Journal, but we have so much richness here in terms of your story, and we haven't even got to when you went to Chicago from Chicago to USC uh, to do show development. Tell us about that
0: yeah so when I was in Chicago I realized if I'm going to be serious about this and take it to the next level I needed to be in Hollywood uh, and networking with the right people and learning from the best professors so I transferred to USC and I studied film and I minored in business law and when I was at school there I worked at Fox Motion Picture and I worked at Stars Entertainment Uh, one of the cool stories out of Stars Entertainment was I was in the uh, development side of things when 50 Cent walked in with this crew and they came to pitch this new show about drugs and nightclubs and power. And it turned out to be the show Power. We get a chance to read the script and it was uh, right before they walked in. It was pretty great. And uh, still one of my favorite shows to this day.
1: That's something that's different. When I had planned to talk to you, I didn't know you had so much experience in the entertainment realm. I know you helped with uh, Fox Sports One, New Girl, Mindy Project, Grace and Frankie. Yeah,
0: so I can, that's I think what makes that, like
1: move to Texas so
0: big for me at least, is because I felt like I was on a good track in the entertainment
1: industry to do pretty well. And you up and left and went to Texas.
0: Yeah. So. After I graduated USC, I was one of nine graduates in California, selected for a new program at Fox Networks Group. And each of us were paired up with an executive at Fox. And I was paired up with the co-president of Fox Sports at the time, who later turned into the CEO, Eric Shanks. And I worked as his special projects guy. So every week I would sit down with him and talk about any kind of concerns he had uh, about the network and different things I could research or people I could talk to. This was an especially interesting time because it was as we were launching Fox Sports 1. So I traveled with production crews. I uh, helped look at and pitch potential shows. I looked at anchors across the country and commentators, and I tried to identify people at mid-level or smaller markets that could be good on the national level. One of the stories that I remember is Eric took me out to lunch one day and we talked about Fox Baseball broadcasts for a few hours. And he sat down and he said, Joe, uh, this is the guy that created, do you know the yellow line in a football broadcast that shows you where the first down is at? Of course, yeah. So this is a guy that developed that. So when I was traveling with NFL, Fox crews or MLB crews, some of the, the college crews too, we would look for new opportunities like that. So I'm sitting down with Eric and we're talking about that. And he says, you know, how can we bring some of those uh, additions to our baseball broadcast? Cause our broadcasts tend to be long and we want to make sure we bring more viewers. So my project for the next two weeks was buying a bunch of baseball video games, and playing them. And then I had to pitch to a room of Fox executives what I found and different tools that could be implemented, the Fox broadcast. I mean, you, you see things that make some of these broadcasts more interactive. You see the, the strike zone, and you see um, like how
1: fast the, the ball is being pitched and things like that. So it's trying to find new, um, new tools like that. Joe, do you still have that slideshow? I can look for it.
0: I you are
1: – you are amazing, dude. No.
0: You are awesome. There was another project that was just crazy, which was, so for about a month, I had to look at all of the Fox Sports football games and CBS games and NBC games and NFL Network games, and I had to mark down all of the replays and the graphics and Like each time there was a graphic made, each time there's a replay, like what their talking points were. This was a a presentation that was distributed to each of the producers of the the trucks and guys like Joe Buck uh, Buck and Troy Aikman were reading some of these notes, which was pretty cool. And um, to know that, so each production crew what that report found has a different personality, and it was melding that personality with the Fox personality, which was more like a rugged and and in-your-face personality than some of the other like NBC and and CBS broadcasts. So it was finding like a, a melding of those personalities. It was cool. Like uh, Michael Strahan and uh, Glazer were referred to me as Shanks guy because you'd always they'd always see me around the set, and I'd always be like, distributing some of this stuff, and. Uh, yeah, that was cool.
1: I'm blown away by the fact that you went from small town Indiana to sitting in one of the most powerful entertainment, you know, organizations with the CEO who's spending hours talking to you about these very refined and unique aspects of production
0: talking to me. The the cool thing was, I think the reason I got the job is because he's from Indiana and I'm from Indiana too, and in my interview we talked about that for a solid hour. So, I think he appreciated that I was willing to work hard.
1: Well, my cool. man crush, my man crush is out of control at this point, uh, <laughs> Joe. So, <laughs> we're we're I'm I love it, man. I love your background, your story, this amazing work that you get to get pulled into. Uh, You connected with Jane Fonda. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so after Fox Sports, I knew I still wanted to do TV development, so I had a conversation with Eric and, and some of the other people at Fox, and I was fortunate enough to get a TV talent desk, a creative artist agency. So I was an assistant working under a TV talent agent, so anybody that's seen Entourage, I was essentially the Lloyd That situation for over two years. Uh, But it was a great desk to be on. So some of the clients we covered were Jane Fonda, Whoopi Goldberg, Carrie Fisher, Gina Davis. Uh, Part of the responsibility was was a coverage desk. So uh, we covered a handful of different networks for our agency. And we also helped find new roles for our clients. So an example would be HBO came out with the show Westworld. And At the time, people didn't know what it was, so it came out with a character breakdown, which is, these are all the roles we need to fill. This is like a character description. Is there anybody at the creative artist agency that you think would be a good fit for this? We'd go around to different offices and talk to people about their clients, who's available and what times and things like that. We put together a a talent list and send it back to, to HBO. And uh, another part of the job was finding roles for our clients. So some of our clients weren't looking for regular TV work, like somebody like Whoopi Goldberg, for example, was open to doing uh, uh, whether it's a two or three episode arc or a one-off or just like an appearance on a show. So we'd look for roles like that for some of our clients. And then some of our clients were looking for uh, long-term TV roles. And then some clients surprised us. So uh, in one story, Netflix was... Uh, producing a new show called Grace and Frankie, and uh, they thought Jane Fonda would be right for the role. We got the script that came in, and uh, my boss read it at the time, and, and I read it, and we talked about it, and thought it might be a good fit for her, so called her on the phone and told her about it. She got a chance to read it. She really enjoyed it, so then we got, got the network on the phone and, and negotiated the deal, and and Jane got on that show.
1: That's wild. So, were you ever starstruck, like, by all these being around celebrities?
0: <laughs> Oddly, no. So the interesting about Creative artist Agency, it's a pretty good talent agency, and it attracts a lot of different, um, like, people into the office every day. So you'd be riding in the elevator with, like, Cindy Crawford, or a lot of politicians would come visit as well. But no, I never, never really got starstruck by that stuff.
1: Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. because if it was me, I would have been like, "Oh, congratulations, but could I get your autograph?" And then I would yeah. get, I would get fired right away. So with that being said, obviously you're close to the CEO of Fox Sports One and you're working on these awesome projects. You could probably still be living in USC. But for some reason, you end up going to Texas and leaving all of that. What happened? Oh, well,
0: there's one more stint outside of Creative Artists Agency that was pretty good. So I worked after Creative Artists Agency. I worked at Fox Comedy Development. And it was a pretty great time to be at Fox Comedy Development. So there were nine of us in the comedy development team. And it was four executives and five assistants. And we were in charge of... Helping develop shows like New Girl and Mindy Project and Brooklyn Nine Nine, Bob's Burgers and Family Guy and Last Man on Earth, and so what would happen there was, say for example, New Girl has a new episode coming out, so it would come into the two executives that I was covering, and we would all read the scripts and give notes and jump on with the showrunner and go to table reads and make sure that it was the story was right. And then we would also, there's something called pitch season. So it's a handful of months where different show producers or talent come into the office to pitch new shows and it's a pretty hectic season. So it's it was really interesting to be, to be part of that as well.
1: That sounds like most of our dream jobs. And why again, did you end up leaving that?
0: (laughs) So I worked there and then I was in management for BizWell. There was a growing feeling inside of me for a number of months that I wasn't really in the right place and that was for a number of different reasons so one was having the ability to tell the stories I wanted to tell on my own terms and then another was I'm going to be honest with you Steve I think I just really lost sense of who I was and it was lost my relationship with Christ and it was chasing after things that I I didn't need I just thought were cool chasing after like people and that was a life I didn't even want at 20 let alone at 40 or 50 or 60. So these are feelings that were brewing inside me for a while. And it culminated one day when I was on a call with a, a client, my boss at the time, and the client wanted their dog to fly first class to visit them on set. And I took a break from the call and I went to the break room, and a news bulletin flashed across the screen that said, Mosul liberated from ISIS forces. It was October 2016. And something in me just clicked. And I said, that's exactly where I need to be. Those are exactly the stores I need to be covering. So within a month of that news bulletin on screen, I left the industry and I packed up my stuff into my car and I drove to Texas and was looking for a job.
1: And why Texas?
0: I had one of my sisters living in Texas at the time and I had visited them a few times and I, I really enjoy the state and it's a good job market too.
1: Yeah. So you said something that uh, really resonates, which is you got tired of covering other people's stories. That was something that,
0: and I can talk about that all day too. Well, we um, got all
1: day, brother. We got all day. This is good stuff.
0: Good. Uh, so I saw that news bulletin and I mean, the stories coming out after the liberation of Mosul and, and even before some of that stuff were, were all pretty negative headlines. It was uh, stories of kidnappings and a lot of deaths and rape. And I knew a lot of other stories from those areas and from within our community that were much more uplifting. Uh, stories about uh, rebuilding efforts, stories about strong activists that were making a difference. And these stories never really saw a light of day. And that that upset me a bit, to be honest, because there were a lot of these stories going on, but all that the media wanted to cover were these negative headlines.
1: Yeah, I love the juxtaposition of people who have everything, titles, jobs, families, and yet you were in that environment and you just felt they had nothing for you and then you see these other people who are struggling to make it uh who are going through challenging situations and you and joe snell says that's calling to me that's speaking to my heart i've got to go there
0: that's right i was fortunate to be surrounded by a strong family and And some friends that were able to help me put things in perspective pretty often. Yeah, I've always realized what's important to me is family and my relationship with Christ.
1: Yeah, and and so did the Assyrian Journal and Assyrians, is that when it got birthed?
0: No, so it actually happened in Texas. So when I got to Texas, I wasn't even sure I was going to do journalism. I just knew I wanted to tell those stories. So I got to Texas and here's a great juxtaposition for you. So... In October, I was going to work and then after work, I would go to a comedy show or get drinks and go to events and things like that and often get home at at one or two o'clock and then... That's
1: later, my dog, baby. That's my <laughs> dog having a, a good week. time. <laughs>
0: uh, and then a week later, I was sleeping on my sister's couch, uh, not sure what I was going to do and being woken up by my niece and nephew jumping on me saying, Uncle Joe, wake up, Uncle Joe, wake up. So. It was, uh, it was a big difference to say the least. I started looking for a job right away and it was, very, it was very tough to say the least because for the longest time I felt like I was on a track and I felt like if I kept my head down and worked hard, I was gonna do everything I wanted. And then after a while I realized, well, if I do everything I want, is it even what I want? Mm-hmm. And so now to be somewhere where I wasn't sure what my career trajectory was, but I knew in my heart what I needed to do. And that was honestly, Steve, the most fulfilling feeling in the world. So yeah, it was, it, (laughs) it seemed like I had a lot in LA and I was on the right career trajectory, but I felt more fulfilled on that couch in my sister's living room than I had any other time before. So yeah.
1: I think a lot of people have those moments where they can hit the reset button, the refresh button. It takes a lot of courage. And and a lot of people just pretend it's not there. But it sounds like you'd said, okay, I'm gonna do this. So with that being said, you then launched a Syrian journal.
0: Oh, yeah. Sorry, I should get into that. It was <laughs> so when I got to Texas, I wasn't really sure what I was gonna do. So I started looking for a job, and something that came right away was. A music, it was working for a music producer. It was somewhat in entertainment. It paid pretty well. And I thought, you know what? I can just make money in Texas and settle down and I'll work in an industry I'm, I'm pretty familiar with. And that'll be it, it'll be fine. But there's something in me craving to tell the right stories about our people. So I applied for, I'd never applied to journalism jobs before. I I wrote a little bit in high school, and then I did it just a little bit in fun, uh, a little bit for fun in college, but I I never had a job like that or anything. But I told my family I was going to apply for some journalism jobs, and they, I don't know if they thought I was very serious. Uh, I found a job at a hyper local paper in Irving, Texas, just outside of Fort Worth. And it wasn't a full-time job, it wasn't a part-time job, it was a freelance job that paid $50 an article and it didn't include benefits. So to give you a perspective on just how cheap that was, $250 uh, an article for freelance is considered relatively cheap. So $50 an article, uh, especially after like being on a you know, working entertainment and feeling like I was on a track, it uh, felt tough, but I went into that newsroom and it was a Back house of some couple, and there were newspapers piled up to the ceiling, and there were a few desks that were empty from, I'm guessing reporters that used to sit there. They take me to this, <laughs> this conference room, and sit down, and they ask me about my experience. I'm like, you know what? I don't really have much, but I can write and I can work hard. And they said, you know what? Okay, that's great. We'll call you, and. I didn't hear from them for days. And at the same time, I had this uh, music producer job sitting on the table that has benefits, that pays a salary. And they keep calling me to ask about if I'm going to take it or not. Say, ah, you know, I need another day or two to like think about it. Because in the back of my head, I really wanted that newspaper job, which just seems crazy to me now. And I'm sure it seemed crazy to my family back then. And I wasn't hearing from them for two or three days so I, I remember I wrote this down in my journal I prayed about it I was like you know what God I really feel this calling to like write and to help our community I need to like I feel like this journalism job will give me the skills and like put me on a path to do that so if it's in your will uh, I I think it's important to like hear back from them soon and like if I don't hear back from them by Friday I'm just gonna pull the trigger on this like music producer job. So a few days go by, I keep like holding off the music producer people Friday morning comes along and I'm like dreading it. I'm like, ah, I'm going to have to call the music producer. So at about 10 or 11 o'clock, I get an email from the editors of the newspaper saying, Hey, we've got this event that we need somebody to cover Can you run out and cover it? Like, damn done. I'm going to like take this newspaper job and I'm going to turn on the music producer. And this is going to be my track now. So I, took that newspaper job and I was covering local stories all over town. And I was working there as a freelance reporter, just taking whatever assignments they had and making $50 an article. And I started to develop some skills and I felt a little bit more confident in my ability to write a story and to talk to sources. And so I wanted to transition that into writing about our community. So I heard about the Atuti Institute had a new leadership program that was launching, and I thought it'd be a great first thing to try. So I interviewed Savina Dawood, and I wrote the article, and I pitched it to a number of different Assyrian news sites. My idea was never to start anything new to be honest i just wanted to contribute to something that was existent and i pitched it to a lot of different assyrian news sites and i didn't hear back from most of them and i did hear back from one and they told me that's great we'll publish it and then i hadn't heard back from them for weeks after that after i kept calling and and emailing to follow up so i got really frustrated with the process and i said to myself if this is like our Assyrian media, we need to like have a platform to tell these other stories, not the stories of like negative headlines. Because I think that like the negativity and some of the media coverage really does a lot to our, uh, I guess, our like spirit. And we need to have more of uplifting spirit. And a lot of places weren't willing to publish that or they were just aggregating news, like Assyrian news that they found in like bigger publications. And I thought we needed to like, control our own story and have writers telling our own stories and going out there and getting harder stories to find and more uh, like critical pieces too.
1: Why do we need the more critical stories?
0: I think that we need to take control of our narrative. And I think that a lot of other outlets and media companies had taken control of our own narrative, and We needed to take it back. We need to reclaim it. Perfect example, a lot of these places were only telling the stories that they wanted to tell, but they weren't the stories like most of the stories that were actually taking place on the ground. So I heard of a lot of uplifting and encouraging initiatives from our community, but these stories only existed as Facebook posts and phone calls to family and friends. And these stories needed to be shown a light of day. And especially our our community in other parts of the world needed to have a platform for their voice to be told. And I think there were some places that were doing that, but not at the level of, of a media organization. It was like social media sites and blogs and things like that, but there needed to be a, an established media organization that, uh, that was telling these stories. But yeah, taking back our narrative in the sense of, like we choose what stories are told. It, it's not just like negative headlines. It's not just people being killed and, and things like that. It's uplifting efforts. It's rebuilding efforts. It's strong activists. It's There's a new bakery that's up in Nala I'm writing a story about. I don't think that story would see the light of day in any major news broadcast, but it's a story that needs to be told.
1: I really appreciate that you sense that. Before I ask you more questions about how that translated into, you know, many articles from the Assyrian Journal, what I want to know is why do you think many of those outlets had gone down that route? What <laughs> what caused that to happen
0: Uh, before that can i just mention how the like journal actually started sure it was well there was just one like part i i don't think i mentioned very well but it was um so i I got frustrated by the process because i kept kept pitching this story out to a lot of syrian news outlets and no one wanted to run it and so it was one night i got frustrated by it all so i I went on WordPress and I bought a domain and I created a website and the next morning the Assyrian journal existed with one article and it was my baby and I loved it. And it's been there ever since. So it, it really accumulated out of one night.
1: It was the article about Savina. It was the article about the,
0: uh, 2T leadership program that they have.
1: Uh, Savina was episode number four or number three or four on the podcast. Yeah.
0: She's That's got about- an interesting story about the Assyrian once we talk about the Assyrian stories as well, she's in there too.
1: Yeah, she's just she's just a powerhouse in our world. And and that's awesome, man, that she was the first, or the Atuti Institute, obviously. I can't,
0: I can't imagine what was going through her head. She's like, this is not a reporter. This is just some guy that just like, he doesn't even know where this article is going to live. And yeah, but she, she was
1: helpful through that. Yeah, the work they're doing is amazing. So thank you for sharing kind of more about I love the fact that you know what, you had these other outlets simply were not doing what they ought to be doing. And you just said, Well, I don't care if no one reads this. Here it is. It's WordPress.com, like put it out there on the domain. And that's right. I look that's at the it, thing
0: too. I like offered it to them for free. It's like I don't want any money. You don't even need to give me credit on this article. It's just a story that needs to be told. So just run it. So I think that's why it was a bit frustrating. It's not like it was a, like a money negotiation or anything. It's just they just like they didn't even read the article. They just didn't want to run the story.
1: I've gone to your website, you know, now, and man, lots of stories. And how many writers are there contributing to a Syrian journal?
0: So it fluctuates. It's about seven right now, and some go in and out. Some people write an article or two, and we're totally open to somebody that just wants to write an article that they feel passionate about. About seven people right now that we have weekly calls with and talk about articles that are coming out. There's also a a co-editor now. If I can make a quick shout out to Yasmeen Altaji, uh, who's studying journalism at Medill as well. But she's a co-editor with me right now.
1: Yeah, I I saw that earlier today. Well, tell me why you have so many different writers.
0: Um, The idea was having writers from different Assyrian communities around the world. So I could try to tell a story in Turlock, but an Assyrian in Turlock would be able to tell that story so much better because stories aren't just about Talking to people and getting a few quotes and putting details in. It's about smells and colors and emotion. And you can't capture a lot of that on the phone. You need to be in these places and also to pinpoint what are the real stories in these communities. So I could follow the Los Angeles Eastern community and hear about things going on Facebook and Twitter. But people in that community know what the real stories are or know what's important to that community that may not exist on Facebook and Twitter. So uh, in those senses, I think it's important to have Assyrians living in the communities that we are covering to have a, a pulse on what's important and, and give a little bit of detail.
1: Yeah, and that aligns with Assyrian podcast in that we never wanted anyone to do any remote interviews or you know when the pandemic happened we said fine we don't want to cause anyone to get uh, sick or put anyone in harm's way and so we opened it up to allow these kinds of interviews and so i am thankful that we're doing this because you're someone obviously you've been on my list to interview for a long time and how do you feel about where the Assyrian Journal is today, you know, several years after it's been in the world?
0: Oh, that's a good question, Steve, because I could give you the honest truth, which is that we can be doing so much more. I think about that a lot. There's a lot of missed opportunities, and every missed opportunity is a missed chance to tell an important story. So I think back to that day, I think back to growing up in Indiana with that local newspaper. And that small town story, even if it seems insignificant, makes a big difference to people. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of those stories that exist in our community. And each one that we miss is a missed chance to to tell that person's story.
1: The reality is I I feel the same way with a Syrian podcast. Uh, There's so much jewels. There's so much value. There's so much goodness. And yet, None of us are, you know, resourced. We're doing it on our off hours. We're, we're putting our best foot forward. We're thankful for our sponsors who are awesome. Um, and, and, you know, Tony, I, shout out. Yeah, dude, Tony keeps every Assyrian community. up. <laughs> <of love. laughs> he really does. He uh, does. <laughs> but I feel your pain on that. And I think the challenge is how do we, how do we learn ourselves to focus on the goodness, the positives? Uh, which it sounds like you've transitioned from Assyrian Journal, which is still alive and vibrant. You've added a piece to it, which is called Assyrian Stories.
0: Yeah, so the idea really originated from I'm a big fan of humans in New York. And as I got into it, I realized this is a, a perfect platform. It almost feels like it's built for the Assyrian community because we are such a scattered community. And myself and other Assyrians that grew up in areas that don't have big Assyrian communities have Assyrian stories to share as well that are important to share because I think it's important for Assyrians that live in bigger communities to know that there are other Assyrians that exist and that are are fighting to keep the culture alive. I had the idea running through my head and thinking about how it would work. And then I was sitting at the Assyrian policy conference in D.C., I remember I was sitting in the back of the room and there's a speaker going on and Savina, again, Savina just pops up in my life, is sitting on the left side of me and uh, we're just talking about the community and how to cover it a bit better. And then I say to her, uh, have you heard of humans in New York? Like, do you think something like this would be helpful for the Syrian community? She said, yeah, yeah, sure. I think it'd be great. And I was like, all right, that's all I needed to hear. Savina thinks it's good. So then I create an Instagram account and a Facebook page for it, I start talking to Assyrians in Dallas because at the time I was living in Texas and I thought, you know what, uh, a lot of Assyrians in bigger cities don't know that there are Assyrians in Dallas or they don't know like what kind of struggle it is to keep the culture alive. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a perfect example of like Assyrians going through something to uh, like trying to like, keep their culture alive in a way that make Assyrians in big cities may not understand. So we were having an Assyrian church service in Dallas and a traveling priest would come in from California. And one day after service, we're all mingling. And I'm talking to a woman who had driven over three hours from Louisiana to be a part of the service, just to be a part of the the church service. Mm -hmm. And she's an Assyrian woman um, that's raising her family in Louisiana. And she wants to Raise them in an Assyrian culture, and she wants to just be around her culture. And I thought that that was such a beautiful story um, because sometimes I think we take for granted when we are surrounded by an Assyrian community in a big city or that has a lot of other Assyrians. And this woman was craving just to go to service for a few hours with other Assyrians. Yeah, there are a lot of Assyrians that live in these big communities, but there are a lot of other Assyrians that live in rural places or more isolated places or much smaller communities that are going through shared experiences. And these are the stories we also need to highlight alongside these other big Assyrian uh, communities. These are people that are fighting fighting to keep their culture alive. And they, I think, appreciate trying to keep that culture alive in a way that people that live in bigger cities might not see because they don't have to fight for in the same way.
1: Yeah, I think that we tend to take it for granted is sort of what I'm hearing from you is that when we have a lot of Assyrians around us, we don't understand the culture that we're a part of. And then when you go somewhere like Texas or these rural areas where maybe there isn't Assyrians, you meet other Assyrians who are wildly different than the Assyrians who like grew up around other Syrians. Could you speak to that?
0: Well... Widely different, but I would argue in a lot of ways very similar, and that's what made it feel like family. So this woman from Louisiana came to the church service, and she said that she felt like she was at home, and we felt like she was at home with us. We'd never met her, and she'd never met us, uh, but it was that shared Assyrian experience that made us feel like family. So I think that's what's so poignant about the, all this, is that living in Texas might feel a lot different than living in a place like Los Angeles. But what binds us together is that we're Assyrian. So I could walk into somebody's house that's like miles away or in a different country. And if they're Assyrian, I feel right at home. And that's what Assyrian Stories is trying to capture we're all family. We're all going through these like shared cultural experiences, even though it may seem like we are miles away or, um, living different lives.
1: I think we all have these
0: shared experiences. We're all family in a way.
1: Well, I really appreciate how you are capturing these stories and I appreciate your passion, your, your own sense of dignity around this work that you're doing and Thank you. You know, thank you for Assyrian Journal and Assyrian Stories and the f- more work that's going to come out in the future. So before we talk about what you're currently doing, which is actually super awesome, and to understand your trajectory to where you're at now is is really interesting, I wanted to ask you, where do you see Assyrian Journal and Assyrian Stories five years from now? <laughs>
0: I think the Assyrian Journal and Assyrian Stories five years from now are producing content much more regularly and have more contributors and are an official source of information not only for our community, but for outside of our community as well. A big reason the Assyrian Journal started wasn't just to tell Assyrian stories for ourselves, it was to tell these stories for individuals outside of our community, and to try to shift the narrative in larger media organizations. So five years from now, I'd like to see the Assyrian Journal producing content more regularly and having more in-depth articles, and also having the ability to crack the media bubble the bubble outside of the Assyrian community to penetrate other communities.
1: You think like a CEO, Joe. And so all that time around these people, experiences and people who have influenced you, I am sensing more and more someone who's a visionary and someone who really wants to make a legit impact. And so with that being said, talk us about what you're doing these days. I see you posting some really cool stuff, which I just need to, before you respond, say, I love the Middle East Minute.
0: guys, this is Joe Snell. Behind the important coronavirus coverage that is dominating the news cycle right now are some major developments coming across the Middle East. So this week, let's catch you up with news from behind the coronavirus news
1: curtain. We begin in Iran. Dude, I love that, man. I've always wanted to hear about what's going on in the Middle East from a source that I can trust, a source that knows what's really going on and reports it. Man, I don't know what you're doing these days beyond, but I hope you never let go of Middle East Minute. I love that thing.
0: When I'm nine years old and on my deathbed, I'll still be producing a Middle East Minute just for you, Steve.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Yeah, so after rambling Newspapers, I wanted to uh, cover our community in a more meaningful way, and also to potentially become a a foreign correspondent or rise up in the ranks. So I knew I was going to pursue a graduate journalism route. So I left the paper and I started a comm job at an aircraft seating company that was based in Texas, but headquartered in Germany. And I actually grew somewhat close to the Assyrian community out in Germany. I love them so much and. I saved up money for grad school. So I was still writing on the side for the Eastern Journal and and pitching out to other publications as well. And I started at Northwestern last year in their uh, graduate journalism route in politics, policy, and foreign affairs. And that has been a great opportunity. It's afforded me to cover Things from all over the world to be honest. So I was covering the EU summit in Brussels. A historic day in Brussels last night at October's EU summit, as the Brexit deal was reached within hours of the Council's roundtable meeting. Brexit negotiations hinged with top European leaders on Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland is a part of the UK but shares a border with EU member Republic of Ireland. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson agreed to a special arrangement where Northern Ireland would remain part of the customs territory of the UK, but would not add a hard border with the Republic of Ireland. I was covering US Army headquarters in Wiesbaden. I did reporting in Paris and Frankfurt and then all over the states. I've also been in DC at a really opportune time during the impeachment process and and some other things coming out of DC. So getting a chance to talk to guys like Chuck Schumer and, and McConnell and, and Romney has been, uh, it's been interesting.
1: What's the program?
0: What's the actual program you're doing? It's uh, Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, and the specialization is politics, policy, and foreign affairs. I love it. It's a really interesting, interesting time to do it now during the coronavirus stuff. But uh, so it's in our specialization. I want to say there's about 14 of us or 15 of us, and half of us are international students, and the other half are domestic. And there's a mix of people that really want to do politics and people that want to be foreign correspondents. And it's been a it's been a good mix. I really like the group a lot.
1: I know you're getting close to finishing the grad program. What's next?
0: Yeah, so I graduated in June, and now it's about finding a foreign correspondent job. So in the middle of the job hunt right now, I will still be producing the Middle East Minute. Yeah, that's where I'm at.
1: I think that your ability to uh, see stories, understand stories, find the vulnerable pieces within stories is something that you know, all of us shape our view of ourselves from what's going on in our communities and um, how we see ourselves based on you know, events that are happening in the, in the world. And for you to now have found this you know, way of reporting about what's happening in an underserved and overlooked and mistreated and also misrepresented region of the world, which is the middle East. To me, I would call all of your Fox sports, anyone, you know, in a couple of years after you've refined and say, look, this is what people want to hear. This is what people need to know. Do you see yourself? in one of these big networks? Or are you going to do continued kind of chart your own path? I'm going to be honest
0: with you, Steve, I am not sure. I, what is been my What has been my guiding rock is not necessarily where I work, but the kind of work I do. So I want to make sure I'm telling the right stories. And I don't care if that's at a, a newsletter or at a community paper or if that's at a, a major network. If I have the ability to tell the right stories in the right way, then I think I'll be in a good place.
1: I think you'd be an amazing place. So before we close out, I know you have uh, a funny story when you were writing in Texas. Tell us that story.
0: Oh, it's not necessarily crazy funny stories. It's just like really... <laughs> Uh, like interesting stories, stories you wouldn't think are like the most important, but they made a big difference for me. One of my first stories when I was this freelance writer was (laughs) I got a note from my editor at the time that said, hey, a woman is turning 100 years old, and she's always wanted to ride in a hot air balloon. And now she's getting her chance, like a, a few people raise money to like, make sure she gets to ride it. So you need to cover the story this weekend and um, like turn it over and make it something good. So (laughs) I remember getting up super early because I had to drive. I mean, things in Texas are pretty spread out. So I had to drive a few hours early in the morning to meet this 100 year old woman and her son and uh, some other people, part of her bridge club. And it was dark. uh, And we were in a supermarket parking lot. And I'm just sitting there with this hundred year old woman and her son and some of her bridge club friends and a hot air balloon company rolls up and they talk to her about everything, how it's going to work and what needs to happen. And then we drive uh, to a field nearby and they blow it all up and they put her in the hot air balloon with her son and she's flying through the air and it's me and her bridge club buddies that are driving in the hot air balloons. Uh, van that are following the hot air balloon as it flies in the air and we would occasionally get out and stop and take pictures and we followed it into a field as it fell and the woman gets out and she's just the happiest woman you've ever seen and her son gets out and the hot air balloon company pulls out a table with a tablecloth and champagne and a small little breakfast meal and I'm just having breakfast with this woman and her son and her bridge club friends and two hot air balloon people.' And I'm like this is this is my life now. But that was was one of the happiest stories I've ever covered. It, it made a big difference to that woman too. she She and one of the bridge club members came into the newsroom about a week later to ask
1: for a, a bunch of copies of the paper so they could they could have it man, it sounds like Texas was foundational for you? Like that newsroom piled up with all those newspapers and that back of that couple's house?
0: I would think so. Like a lot of things have been like foundational a lot of different ways. Texas is where I really found myself, if that makes sense. I don't know if I've considered a place home as much as Texas.
1: What is a story that nobody else is thinking about right now but it keeps you awake at night and it frustrates you that no one is covering it.
0: Ah, this is really interesting. That's a good question. story that's keeping me up like it, just any kind of
1: story or about our community or what do you mean? It can be anything that gets Joe Snell's attention that you don't have to explain why, just share with us like something that most people are probably not thinking about yet. It's on your dashboard. What I think
0: about all the time is I went on Gishru last year and I get a chance to meet Assyrians in some of our communities in Iraq. And I think about them more than every day, four or five times a day and making sure that I tell their stories in the right way so sorry i can't give you one particular story but i can tell you that the people i think about i see their faces and i see their names every day when i write these articles even when i read stories about the middle east like what would this person think about it what would um like would i be telling this story in the right way yeah there's also like a a random note i have a Mm -hmm. found a picture of a syrian's in 1890, which I have in the background of my phone. And I look at that picture all the time. So I think about what, what kind of voice I can give those people that may not have had a voice or like if those people knew what was about to happen, the Assyrian people in the 20th century, what kind of voice could they have been given to say something against it? Does that make sense?
1: Yes. And you know, that was the reason why I asked the question because people need to know what people like you who's in, who's leading, and of course you have other people supporting and helping and leading as well, the Assyrian journal and the Assyrian stories, they need to know your heart. And I feel like we hear that when you just share what you just shared. And, and so with that being said, if I wanted to become a writer for the Assyrian journal or someone who's listening to this said, man, Joe, I have a story, it needs to be covered. Assyrian stories or either one, how would they go about doing that? Uh, Well,
0: I'm going to do a shameless plug, but if you know of a story that you want to cover, or if you want to contribute regularly, or even if you know of something that should be covered, but you don't want to write it, you can find us on our website and email us, or just email joe.snell at the com,
1: And we would love to Cover stories from all over the world. And one thing we ask everyone who is on the podcast is if you could say one thing to every Assyrian listening to this, what would you say to them?
0: Yeah, so especially working in the entertainment industry, I had a lot of friends that would come up to me and show off the latest camera that they bought, the latest equipment, and it was the nicest thing you'd ever had. And then when you talk to these people about what they produce with it, uh, you get blank stares and I would much rather see somebody producing something on a small phone they have, than have an expensive camera, but not do anything with it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is you can make a difference with a, a pen or a pencil and a pad of paper. You don't need to like wait for the most expensive equipment or the fanciest degree or a lot of money. Does that make sense?
1: It makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. Joe, you're someone who, you know, I feel like I can keep chatting with you for probably five
0: more hours. We need to talk about the Saints at some point, too. So, big Saints now.
1: Your stories far outweigh National Football League or anything. (laughs) I will say that when you started to talk about how stories are framed how you think of stories, no story is objective, and just your own love and passion and the explosiveness of media to tell stories. I mean, I want the entire Assyrian nation, they should be reaching out to you. Everyone should be, you know, emailing you, calling you, and just especially anyone who's in the arts, anyone who wants to be a writer, anybody who wants to communicate about something that's going on. There's awesome Assyrians doing all kinds of stuff. But I just when I think of your story and your background, I hope people who are listening to this will invest in themselves by calling you by reaching out and connecting with the initiatives that you've started. And, you know, hopefully, you'll continue to create new initiatives and uh, juggle everything you're doing. And I just can't say how much of a blessing you are, man.
0: That's really nice. Thank you, Steve.
1: Well, thank you so much, Joe, for being on the Assyrian podcast and for everything that you do. Uh, Keep doing your good work, man, and we will catch up with you hopefully sooner than later.
0: Sounds good. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, I have a favor to ask before we close out. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received on the podcast thus far. If you could take a minute after this to rate and review us wherever you listen to us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.